You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. I'm Carrie Ipema. I'm Quinlan Potts. And we have a podcast called Truly. Darkly. Creepily. We think you're going to love it. We think you're really going to. If you don't love it, you'll like it a lot. If And if you don't like it, you'll hate it. But what did you lose, really? What, an hour? You're doing dishes. Relax. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> Calm down. But don't relax too much. You Those dishes do need to get they done. They do need to be done. If it's true, if it's dark, if it's creepy, we talk about it. It qualifies. If we talk cults. We talk heists. We talk paranormal. Kidnappings. Aliens. Ghosts. And murders. Serial killer. You know, the typical fare. More importantly, we have fun. If you want to have fun, come on down. If it's free. What it's are you very losing? casual. <laughs> Wear whatever you want. Show up whenever you want. Hey, no shirt, no shoes. Yes, podcast. So listen to Truly Darkly Creeply wherever you download podcasts. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria. And you are listening to your favorite international podcast and what you heard in the beginning right after our intro music was the promo for truly darkly creepily a podcast that is also hosted by two lovely women quinlan and carrie and if you like us chances are pretty high that these two funny ladies will be right up your alley so go check them out yeah that sounds great nice all right, now back to Fresh Hell, the podcast. <laughs> I know. Like, sorry, uh, that was enough time for our, <laughs> our commercial break. Yeah, no, we're the podcast that covers all the things dark and twisty. The podcast with two online friends who have never met in real life. A lot of trust for strangers here, I gotta say. And one day we started to record a podcast together. And here we are. Yes, here we are three years oh later. It was so cute. A hellion made a post in the Facebook group that uh, she had found us. And when she started to listen, she actually started at episode 90 or something like that, which is a good That's idea. Great. Don't start at the beginning. If you're new, start somewhere around 20 or 30, I'd say. You know, only go back to the first episodes once you really like us. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this hellion had listened from 90 on and now she felt she was ready to listen to those first episodes and she asked if we had actually ever talked to each other before. <laughs> I saw that. It really made me laugh. And we really didn't. I think we literally spoke maybe twice before recording that episode. Yeah, and I was so intimidated by you in the beginning. That is... See, that's seriously so funny to me. I'm pretty sure I've cured you of that by now, right? Like, I am no longer intimidating. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. I think you're probably the more intimidating of the two of us. I think everybody would agree. Like, if there was, if shit went down, I would absolutely use you as a human shield, is what I'm saying, because I feel like you would handle things better. No, I never thought that we would have uh, anybody ever listen besides our friends and family, like people that we forced to listen to us talk about murder, mystery, and the macabre through history. That's still my favorite thing that you've come up with. I just think you're a genius. But yeah, you guys, you like us. You really like us. It's been three years. We're still here. This is amazing. What's even happening? Where are we? What's my name? All right. So... Listen, we just really want to thank you for your support and for your kindness. It's, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And Annie, you said it, we cover cases throughout history, 
I think you feel very similar. When I think of cases I want to cover, I'm mostly very drawn to the old-timey cases for several reasons. I think they're interesting. They are often not widely covered, uh, especially the cases from Austria and Germany. But I think one of the main reasons is that enough time has passed and it's easy to talk about these cases with some distance. You know, immediate family is most likely not alive anymore and you don't keep sticking your finger in these wounds. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? I do, yeah. I know exactly what you mean, yeah. And, of course, we always try to treat every case and all the victims with the utmost respect. I know when we started this, I said that I just wanted to treat every episode as if the victim's loved ones were listening, right? And I think we do. Yeah, uh, I hope so. It did actually (laughs) happen already. We had relatives contact us from all the cases even, which was so surprising to me. It was really nice. So far, nobody was upset. Nobody hated us. I mean, people hate us, but not these people. Not they, these they people. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. God. <laughs> no, that was The really reason nice. why I mention all of this, there is a case, this case that we will be talking about today, that has been on my mind for a very long time. I think it must have been sometime around 2007, 2008, that I first heard about it, or better, first saw it, because I watched the movie... Alpha Dog, uh, starring the late Antal Yelchin, Justin Timberlake, Emil Hirsch, Sharon Stone, and Bruce Willis. And I thought it was a really good movie. I was especially surprised by Justin Timberlake, I have to say. He was pretty good, to be honest. And this movie depicts a real true crime case, the murder of Nicholas Markowitz, that took place in the year 2000. And so I watched the movie and I was so upset afterwards because this murder was just so, so senseless. I mean, all murders are in a way senseless, but you'll see what I mean when we tell you about it. Yeah. And so I finished the movie and I went onto IMDb because back then they still had the message boards, which was the most beautiful thing ever. And I'm still upset that they got rid of them. So I went onto the message board of that movie and I saw that his mother... So the mother of the victim, Susan Markowitz, had left comments. And from what I could see, she did really think that the movie was was good and that they did her son justice, especially Antel Yelchin, I think. He played Nicholas Markowitz. He was so talented. Which is good. I'm always... I think you know what I mean, Annie. We're always glad when the movies and shows and documentaries get it right. Yes. And the families are happy with or happy are are satisfied with what they came up. So I had this case on my mind, and a little while later I read Susan's book, uh, which is titled My Stolen Son, which is, of course, one of the main sources for this episode. And when we started to do this podcast, I always wanted to talk about Nicholas, because I honestly never forgot him and his story, but I also kind of shied away from it for the reasons I mentioned before. But at one point, I did contact Susan and I asked her if it was okay if we did an episode about her son. And she she said that it was. And then it just took us, what, another six months, not a year until now to really do it. Because we really just want to do this one right. And we really do hope that we will do Nicholas Life Justice. This will be a two-parter. So if you don't want to wait a week for part two, please stop now. Immediately stop. Wait until next Wednesday, because then you can listen to both episodes in a row. 
All right, I see. Let's start at the beginning, Annie. All right. It was 1982 when Susan met a man named Jeff Markowitz. He had recently separated from his first wife, with whom he had two children. So they had a daughter named Leah, who was six at the time, and a son named Ben, who was four. And we're telling you their names because Ben plays a very big part in what was going to happen. So Susan met Jeff. She liked his gentle eyes and his kind character, and they fell in love. After a year, Susan found out that she was pregnant, and she was absolutely thrilled. Jeff and Susan were both just ecstatic. But it was Susan's first pregnancy, and she had wanted to be a mom more than anything. So she started to write a diary and all these little notes to her unborn son, where she told him how much she already loved him and how she couldn't wait to finally meet him. And she did meet him on the 19th of September, 1984, which is the day that Nicholas Samuel Markowitz was born in West Hills, Los Angeles, California. His parents bought a house in West Hills, and life was perfect. Nick grew into a smart toddler, a kindergarten kid, and then on to elementary school. He was kind and polite, he had a great sense of humor, and he was very smart. He liked to fall asleep to audiobooks, and he loved his dog, so I feel like we can really all relate to that. Definitely. Yeah, and he loved his older half-siblings. Ben and Leah stayed with the young family every other weekend, and I'm sure they had some sort of schedules for holidays and vacations and whatnot. But life would have been pretty perfect. There was just one problem. Ben was... I guess we'd probably call him a troublemaker. So he started to get into trouble, and the older he got, the more serious the trouble he got himself into, right? So at age 11, he was stabbing car tires with a screwdriver. A short while later, he was stealing cars for joyrides, for example. And it's not that he was a bad kid. I think the word, again, is is troubled. And Susan mentions in her book that there was tension between Jeff's first wife and herself, but She says she did try to treat all of the children equally. I get it. Patchwork families can be really hard, even if everybody involved is trying their absolute best. I mean, my family is a huge patchwork family, and it's it's hard. It's hard at times. Yeah. So as Annie said, the Markowitz family bought a home in West Hills. It's a residential neighborhood in the west of Los Angeles, a very affluent residential neighborhood, that is. You know how we always do it. I'm looking up this kind of, what are we talking about? What kind of area is this? And it's also kind of important where they lived, in my opinion. So I googled it and I found something on niche.com. Quote, West Hills is a neighborhood in Los Angeles, California, with a population of 47,739. West Hills is in Los Angeles County. Living in the West Hills offers residents a sparse suburban feel, and most residents own their homes. In West Hills, there are a lot of coffee shops and parks. Many retirees live in West Hills, and residents tend to be liberal. The public schools in West Hills are above average. End quote. So you might ask, what's niche.com? And it's apparently a page where you can look up places to live. Like, for example, you want to move and you want to see if that's a nice neighborhood. At least that's how I understand it. Yeah, I'd never heard of it until you found it for the research on this episode. I'm going to have to check it out. We don't have something similar over here. But anyhow, West Hills was ranked as 41st place, 41st best place to live in LA out of 112 and 
sixth place. <laughs> That's a hard word. Thirty-sixth place to raise a family in LA, so way above average. And then I read something that really cracked me up. So people can leave reviews of the neighborhoods there. It's, it's such a weird concept <laughs> for me as as an Austrian. <laughs> and most reviews they praised West Hills for being really nice, peaceful, good schools. People look out for each other. Yada yada. You know. Yeah. Everything sounds great, but one person <laughs> was really mad, and they wrote, quote, two out of five stars. The residents can be pretty rude and self-centered. The sound of barking dogs and gardening tools is a regular thing, because wealthy, retired people need their perfect little lawns trimmed four times a week and can't be bothered to pause Netflix and get off their expensive couches to shush their damp dogs who bark for hours. The residents of this neighborhood love to drive like complete jerks in the Audi Q series, which everyone seems to drive around here. It's so specific. Typical keeping up with the Joneses behavior. And apparently, if you're a man walking by yourself, you're automatically a nefarious person in the eyes of overly paranoid and judgmental female residents who go out walking. End quote. <laughs> First of all, what's with all the dog hate? <laughs> He sounds fun. Second of all, women have reasons for being suspicious most of the time. You know what I mean? Ah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I love angry reviews. <laughs> it's it's so specific and it's weird. It's so like, oddly specific. Maybe he's a nice person. He just had a bad day. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. No, I don't think he is. I think he's a terrible person, and that is indicative I mean, he, of his... he's mad about dogs. He calls dogs dumb, so... Right? There's no coming back from that one. No. Okay, all joking aside. Other than that, curmudgeon, which is a word I love. Thank yeah, you, Annie. Yeah, such a good word. <laughs> Most people really like living there, and they like to raise their families there. And they feel safe and secure. That's the point, right? If you have kids, you want them to be safe. Yeah. Well, the bitter truth is that bad things can happen everywhere. And as Annie mentioned before, Ben was having some issues, and at one point, after he and his friends had stolen a car, he started living with Susan and Jeff for a while, full-time. I'm sure the two hoped they would get him back on track. The problem was he had started to hang out with the wrong kinds of people. He was in, like, this kind of gang-like structures. Uh, yeah. He was really young at that time, too. I think he was 13. And over time, drug dealing was added to vandalism and grand theft auto. We don't want to oversimplify Ben's story. It's not just, oh, he was a child of divorced parents and that sent him on the wrong path. I mean, there are so many divorced families and the kids are fine. And, and you know, yeah, it's also not, oh, he was just a black sheep of the family. Things are never that easy. And Susan Markowitz writes about it way more extensively in her book. And yeah. I don't even have an idea where I'm trying to go with this. Well, I think we just want people to know that we're not trying to be dismissive of all the very real personal struggles that led to various poor decisions that Ben would make, right? It's it's complicated, and that's why we recommend Susan's book to get the whole picture. We're really focusing more on on Nick today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Annie. I think that's exactly it. So yeah, Ben was ultimately arrested for grand theft auto and illegal gun possession around the age of 13, and he was put into a juvenile detention center for a couple of weeks. 
Of course, his parents and his stepmom really hoped that this was his low point and that he would turn himself around after, you know, the shock of being arrested. Right. Unfortunately, it was not. No. For a while, though, it did look like Ben was really trying harder to be better. He was trying not to spend as much time with the wrong crowds. He focused on sports. He was really good at Taekwondo. Any kind of sport can be a really great way to teach discipline, camaraderie, and a routine, right? Mm. A lot of my friends' kids have benefited a lot from sort of the self-discipline that's such a part of martial arts. Yeah. My brother, too. Yeah. So many. My late husband did, uh, yeah, as well. So, for a while, Ben even lived with his sensei for about six months, but in the end, it was a short-term period of peace because, once more, the teenage boy was making friends in the wrong places, and he had a lot of anger management issues. He ran away from home, he would couch surf with friends, he was kicked out of school and got involved with drugs, and at the age of 16, he went back to juvie, this time for grand theft auto and assault with a deadly weapon. At that time, Nick was around 10, and he really missed his brother. He worried about him, and he and Ben would write letters to each other. Actually, Ben wrote regular letters to all of them. He showed really good behavior while he was in the facility, and he was looking forward to coming home. But after his release, he was not living with Nick and the family for long. He lived here and there, again, with friends, then with a girlfriend. In the meantime, Nick had turned 13, and he had gone through this hard time that all of us went through, right, when you're 13, trying to figure out who you are um, as a person. He's making new friends, he's trying out new styles of clothing, went through a little bit of a rebellious phase, but nothing serious. He was still just a really sweet kid, kind person. He was known to stand up for others, and his friends said he was just a really good friend. He was good at being a friend, right? There's a difference, I guess. So He was good at being a friend is, is a nice phrase. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think he would have been one of us. I do. He loved to read, mostly history and science, and he was also into drama club. So totally our kind of people. As time passed, Nick turned 14, then 15. Susan was a little bit of an overprotective mom, but I don't think anybody's blaming her, right? She had been through a lot with her stepson. Mm -hmm. And Nick had a great relationship with his sister Leah as well. But Ben, he really looked up to. He saw him as just really cool, this tough older brother, and Nick wanted to hang out with Ben as much as he possibly could. And... Sometimes Ben would take Nick out to a party. I think that was probably more behind Susan's back. Probably. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, was, Susan Nick was would, still really young. Yeah. He, too young. Yeah. 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 So one of these parties that Ben took his younger brother was at the house of Jesse James Hollywood. And yes, that's his real name. And I mean, I, I don't even know what to say about it, really. There's... There's Listen, I mean, his name is the only thing in this story that's not his fucking fault, right? (laughs) True. True. Absolutely true. But it's terrible. Yeah. Whatever. It's his name. What can we do? (laughs) What can we do? Jesse James Hollywood was the son of a local drug dealer. He was born on 28th of January 1980, so he was roughly two years younger than Ben. And the two had actually met when they were still kids playing Little League. You can't make these things up. Even though they hadn't played on the same team, but the kids and the parents all kind of knew each other, you know, at least from 
they were acquaintances. We don't have Little League over here, Annie. What do you know about it? I guess the parents are usually heavily involved. That's my understanding. I think it's pretty huge here. I feel like I was forced to do My parents made me try all the sports as a child who was never Which particularly... Which is good. I think that's good. I wish my parents would have showed me way more sports. They made us try... I had to try the sports and I had to try the musical instruments. But anyway, here with kids sports, so my very limited observation has been that you'll get kids who just want to do it for fun. Like that was my family, right? Just go out and do it. Learn how to play a sport. It's You'll be active. You'll be in the sunshine. Make friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And their parents sort of show up and cheer them on and everyone has a good time. And it is what it is. And over time, kids decide which ones they really like and which ones they don't want to do anymore. You know, that I would say is the normal path. But then some parents will treat it like it's the first step to a college scholarship when the kid is like six. And they will take it seriously to the detriment of everyone involved. Mm. And you'll hear stories of physical fights involving parents. On It's just super cringy. Mm. Do you think that any of the other parents had a clue or at least kind of a suspicion about how Jesse James Hollywood's dad made a living? My guess would be yes, only because I personally think children playing sports is really boring. Like, oh my god, please don't invite me to your kid's game. Um, I don't, wa- I don't watch the adults' g- game, but I feel like there would have been a lot of gossip, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure if I think that because it's how it's always portrayed on TV. So, but I, I bet, I feel like they knew something. They sensed it in a way, probably. Yeah. Anyhow, Jesse James Hollywood played Little League Baseball. Uh, he was apparently pretty good. He was an all-star pitcher, I think. Is that what it's called? Is that hey, possible? Man. You're an all-star. Yep. And I think he he stopped playing as a teenager because of an injury, which is, I mean, that's not good. I think it's pretty common, though. Yeah. Definitely. So, and in Little League, he had made a couple of friends. Uh, one of them was Jesse Rugi and Ryan Hoyt. And we will talk more about them later. And when Jesse James Hollywood grew older, so around the age of 18 or 19, he stepped into his dad's footsteps, kind of. And he too started dealing mostly with marijuana and other kinds of recreational drugs. And it didn't take him long to purchase his first house. Which took me, I'm 43 yeah. and we just purchased our first and only house last year. So he bought a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house. Uh, I read somewhere that it did cost him $200,000 and he he had the down payment of like $43,000 in cash, obviously. That's crazy. And he bought that before he turned 20. And I'm also sure his new neighbors were absolutely thrilled of course, I'm being sarcastic here because loud music was blasting through the windows. Cars. Why does a 20-year-old have to own a house anyway, right? If he doesn't have a family. The cars would stop in front of the house at all hours of the day. People would come and go, you know, of course, to pick up drugs or to deliver money. Jesse James Hollywood had set up a whole system of people selling drugs for him. And for a while, Ben was one of them. And so Ben started to hang out at Hollywood's house where they would play video games or work out in the fully equipped gym or they would party. And so it came to be that Nick ended up in that house one time, I think. So there's this group of adolescent baby-faced thugs 
in baggy jeans, you know, wearing their baseball caps in reverse and uh, their tank tops. And I think Clint Eastwood would call them little punks. Yeah, they were totally punks. <laughs> yeah. But they thought of themselves as these big, scary gangsters. Jesse James Hollywood, of course, owned several firearms. He constantly carried a Heckler and Koch handgun in his waistband, which, ugh, storing your gun in the waistband of your baggy jeans, of all places, is something <sighs> that makes me so mad whenever I see it in a movie. I think the thing is that some people don't really give enough thought about penile retention until it's too late. Like, do you want to keep your penis? Or your Maybe butt? Don't. Or your butt? Or your life, if you shoot yourself in the thigh, there's an artery yeah. there. Ugh. It is. It's really, it's really, it's bizarre. Yeah, so when he didn't have it in his waistband, he kept it on his nightstand while sleeping for protection, you know? I know. I'm an American. <laughs> of course I know. <laughs> So yeah, Jesse James Hollywood is this big, scary mob boss, and he has all of these people working for him, because they're not his friends per se anymore, they are his employees, right? He's he's their boss. Right. And I think you also have to picture, though, like, sort of how these, these kids are like, these kids are, are white kids from upper middle class areas yeah. who are dressing like gangsters. Yeah. You know what I mean. Jesse James Hollywood, I mean, he bought his house. He has several very fancy cars. He uh, rakes in a lot of money that way. And so he gives his friends the drugs. They sell it. They keep their share and they bring him the rest of the money. But the problem is, if you fuck up, if you lose something, if you get robbed, or if, you know, how young people are, if you consume the drugs with your friends... You are obviously now in a lot of debt, and Jesse James Hollywood is not the forgiving kind of drug lord. It's a shame. They're known to be so forgiving. One of the people who had to make this experience was Hollywood's longtime friend, Ryan Hoyt. Like we said before, Ryan had known Jesse James Hollywood from their Little League days. Ryan came from a somewhat broken family. His parents got divorced when he and his siblings were still very young. His stepmother disliked him, his father used to beat him, his sister got addicted to drugs, and his brother turned to criminal life as well. Ryan adored Jesse James Hollywood and his whole family, and he became somewhat of their, I don't know, I want to call it like that charity case, you know, for the lack of a better term, they would have him over at the house regularly, they would even take him on vacations, and when he grew older, it was only natural that he would take over little jobs for Hollywood's family. Uh, yeah. At one point, Jesse James Hollywood. And I'm sorry that I keep repeating his full name because we will also be talking about another Jesse later on, Jesse Rugi. I really, I can't get myself to calling him Jesse James. <laughs> I can't. I get it. Anyway, so he gave Ryan a car as a present at one point. Nothing fancy, an average car. What I think happened was that this car had actually belonged to Hollywood. So probably he got a new car and told his friend, in quotation marks, you know, uh, you know what, I have a new car, you can have my old one. But the car was registered in Hollywood's name and Ryan was supposed to switch it over to himself. And it looks like uh, Ryan Hoyt was this kind of person who never gets around to do the things in a timely manner. I guess a procrastinator, a bit like me, uh, in a way, so yeah. I absolutely understand. And so he actually never does register the car under his own name. But of course, 
he keeps driving it and the big problem is that he either doesn't know how to park or he doesn't care or maybe give him the benefit of the doubt maybe he couldn't afford to pay for parking because he keeps getting fined for parking tickets well not actually him jesse james hollywood keeps getting the tickets and in total it's over one thousand dollars this behavior man it's just uh... yeah that's it's terrible, really terrible behavior. I feel like as procrastinating as procrastinating, that's not a word. As much as we procrastinate, I feel like we wouldn't do it to the detriment of someone else. Like it's a special kind of narcissism where you put off doing the thing and it's negatively affecting someone else. Yeah. Like it's terrible. So now Ryan has over a thousand dollars in debt to Jesse James Hollywood and Hollywood wants his money. So he tells Ryan that he can pay back the money by selling drugs for him. And of course, Ryan messes that up as well. So now he's in even more debt. And Jesse James Hollywood says to him, listen, you're going to have to pay back the money somehow. You're just going to have to work for me. And so now Ryan is Hollywood's servant, pretty much. He cleans the house. He runs errands. He picks up the dog poop. Whatever Hollywood needs, Ryan Hoyt is there to take care of it. And I'm sure Jesse James Hollywood is thrilled to have his own mm -hmm. little worker bee, right? Just taking care of all his needs. And I'm also sure that Ryan Hoyt was not thrilled at all. Because there he is, hanging around all of those self-proclaimed tough guys, and he's over in the corner picking up the dog poop. But, I mean, listen, we pick dog poop up all the time, so... Oh, please. I once hiked 10 kilometers with a bag of dog poop because there was no trash can anywhere on the trail, so... Yeah. Yeah, we have no problem picking up dog poop. Our dog poops like two grown adult men. <laughs> you need like a grocery bag for Opus, it's like a horse. So exactly, we don't have a problem with picking up dog poop at all. But we're not 20-year-old drug dealers with our baggy jeans and tank tops and poorly thought out tattoos. <laughs> but I think it's safe to say that, you know, just waiting hand and foot on his longtime friend in front of all these other friends must have just really hurt Hoyt's ego. But Ryan Hoyt wasn't the only person who owed money to Jesse James Hollywood. The other one, you may have already guessed it, was Ben. So here's what had happened. A man in San Diego owed Jesse James Hollywood $2,000. Ben was kind of friendly with the San Diego dude, and so he offered to help Hollywood to collect the debt. Ben and Jesse James drove to San Diego, walked into this guy's home with baseball bats, and probably started threatening him. But there was no point, there was just no way that the San Diego guy could come up with the money. But he did know an ecstasy dealer, and so Ben convinced the San Diego man that it would be better for his health if he would owe someone else the money. So, San Diego guy calls the ecstasy dealer and tells him he has someone who wants to buy 200 pills. The dealer comes over to the house, and Ben and Hollywood are outside in the car. So the dealer, he's got his 200 pills, and he leans into the car to show them the pills, and Ben or Hollywood, or possibly both, they grab the bag and they drive off. Again, I'm a middle-aged woman and not an early 2000s drug dealer, but this sounds so unnecessarily complicated. Am I, am I alone in thinking that? No, I'm exhausted explaining it. I... Yeah, these are some really bad decisions. I just want to lay lie down now, really. Yeah, it's too much. It's just too much. But now they have the 200 ecstasy pills, and Ben has this great idea that he'll take over the $2,000 debt, which really doesn't make that much sense, but okay. 
And so he takes the pills, sells them, and he pays back the $2,000, keeping the extra he made. So we wanted to do the math, and we asked around to figure out how much ecstasy went for in the year 2000 in L.A., uh, if you ever, if you're a friend of the show and you ever get this kind of weird messages out of nowhere, it's just us doing research for something. Yeah. <laughs> the answer we got was roughly twenty dollars per pill, which would mean that two hundred pills could get you four thousand dollars. But I mean, only really if you sell them individually, which is probably a pain in the ass. If you sell them in bulk, you probably lower the price a bit. That means at most, at most. Ben would be left with $2,000. And again, I'm a middle-aged woman, but I don't know. That really doesn't seem to be worth it, right? All the trouble, all the running around, selling these fucking ecstasy pills and then being left with $2,000. I mean, it's not nothing, but... Yeah. Plus, I mean, you're doing illegal things, so... Right. Yeah. It's a lot of work and a lot of risk for very little reward. So anyway, Ben is starting to sell the pills and he starts getting complaints that the pills are crap, they don't work. Which I think in the grand scheme of things is lucky, because better to have them not work than to have them be killing people. True. But not working is also a problem. So Ben tries them out himself, and yep, they're fake. So now he has sold roughly 30 pills, which earned him $600. And so he goes to Hollywood and tells him that the ecstasy is not really ecstasy, and he can't sell the pills. Ben hands him the $600, and he also has $200 in cash on him that he borrowed from his dad, and so that still leaves him with a debt of $1,200. And Jesse James Hollywood doesn't want to hear any excuses, he wants his money, but of course Ben didn't have it, so he tries to give Hollywood the fake pills back, and with that, he thought the case was closed. Which is a bit naive, because obviously the case wasn't closed for Jesse James Hollywood. He wanted the $1,200, and he was dead set on getting the money, no matter how, no matter what. And, I mean, honestly, what was Ben thinking there? I don't know. Did he actually give him the pills back? Did he... Yeah. So, maybe he must have thought, like, these are your pills, you know, you deal with it now. Oh, it's not his problem, yeah, it's, it's not my problem. Yeah. I mean, for several months afterwards, nothing happened. Ben really thought he was in the clear. I think he even stayed, like, on talking terms, kind of semi-friendly talking terms. And in the meantime, Ben had actually once more tried to get his life back on track, and he started working for Jeff, and he had proposed to his girlfriend... And now this girlfriend or uh, fiancé worked as a waitress. And so this one time, Jesse James Hollywood and his girlfriend walk into the restaurant where she works and they eat and drink. And when it's time to pay, Hollywood takes the $50 receipt and he writes, take this off Ben's debt on it. And he and his girlfriend just walk out of the place without paying. Now, everybody who worked in the service industry, I know Annie has. I have been working as a bartender and waitress for over a decade. And so what happens when you have a customer leaving without paying, uh, you have to pay out of your own pocket. Most of the time in most places, it's like that. The yep. waiter is responsible for that. Also, what some people love to do uh, in bars, reach behind the bar when the staff is too busy to notice and they steal bottles. No. And the staff has to pay for that out of, oh, I had that happen. I was, <gasps> Yeah, I had that happen. So again, the staff has to pay out of pocket in most places. So please don't do that. You are hurting the little guys with that. 
Yeah. Also, not tipping because you don't believe in tipping culture. Again, you're not hurting Mm. the people who don't pay anybody a living wage and they just live on tips. All you're hurting are the people who are busting their ass to bring you your food. 100%. Um, Absolutely. All right. And we're going to get off our soapbox, but seriously. Also, uh, the United States are not the only country in the world where tipping is expected. Like Austria, same. 10% at least. Please. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, it just drives me nuts. It makes me so angry. But yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, Ben's girlfriend has to pay those $50. And when Ben hears about it, he's livid because he felt that this was extremely disrespectful towards his fiance and also towards himself. And he takes it very personal. And so now the feud is on. Ben leaves threatening voice messages on Hollywood's answering machine. Uh, He also rats him out for some kind of insurance fraud. Hollywood tells all his little goons that they will get back at Ben and they show up, for example, in front of Ben's apartment and they, they stand around there like in a menacing way, I guess. And then more threatening voice messages from both sides. And then Ben is calling Hollywood a kind of offensive term for a small person because he's only five feet four or 165 centimeters. Ben and a friend break one of Hollywood's windows, which causes Jesse James Hollywood to move out of the house. It's it's a whole lot of muscle play. Yeah. Until 6th of August 2000, which is a Sunday. But actually, it all had started the day before, Saturday evening, 5th of August 2000, when Nick, who was a little bit over a month shy of his 16th birthday, had come home high. Yeah. This wasn't the first time that Nick had been caught with some marijuana, and I think a lot of teenagers do these things at some point or another, and parents often feel anxious or helpless when they find out. But of course, his parents are probably feeling extra anxious because they had gone through so much with Nick's older brother, right, Ben, that they decided to postpone the serious conversation that they were going to have the next day when their kid had sobered up again. So the next morning, Jeff gave his son a, you know, good morning kiss before he left to go play tennis. He didn't realize, of course, that this would be the last time he would see his son alive. Susan as well, she talked to him briefly before she went downstairs to make breakfast, and she came back upstairs a short while later to let Nick know that breakfast was ready, and he was gone. So at first she's looking everywhere in the house, but he wasn't there. Then she realized he must have sneaked out because... He just probably didn't want to get the talk. So, Mm. yeah. So she paged him, but there was no answer. She called Ben's house, thinking maybe he had gone there. But nobody was home. And hours now have passed with no sign of Nick. I think we all know this feeling when at first you are so annoyed. And maybe even a little bit angry. But then the worry comes. And all the anger is blown away. And all that's left is that sinking feeling of something not being right. And you start swearing to yourself that you are never gonna be mad again or argue again if only they come home, if only nothing has happened to them. And for most of us, it turns out that it was just, you know, a flat tire or your phone ran out of battery. I know we talked about these kind of things before with missing person cases. Yeah, we have. I know that. I think we all know that feeling. It's just awful. So Jeff and Susan were at home waiting for their son to return and trying to just think about where else they could maybe look for him, what else they could do, calling siblings, calling friends, houses, just what else could they do? But what they didn't know was they weren't in a situation where he had taken off and didn't want to come home. He couldn't come home because he had been kidnapped. 
It was roughly 1 p.m. when Jesse James Hollywood, Jesse Rugi, and another friend, William Skidmore, arrived in a white van. They'd been cruising around trying to find Ben. And all of a sudden, they saw Nick walking down the side of the road all by himself. So they pulled the van over next to Nick and they jumped out of the car and started to kick him and beat him before dragging him into the van. They then sped off and all of this happened so quickly that they didn't realize that they'd left Hollywood behind. So at some point they were like, oh no, and they had to turn the van around and pick up their boss. It's, I mean, it sounds comical. I think it just, it is comical. These assholes are, it's, it just points, the ridiculousness Ridiculous, exactly. Yeah, they they are. What was that guy from the Chowchilla? Like, they were just hoping for the best. Exactly. They were trying to stay cool and hope for the best. hope for the best. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. We all know how that works out, don't we? So, we all know that happened because at the time a woman was driving home from church with her kids and she was the first person to witness Nick's kidnapping. This woman was so smart. Like, seriously, I have so much respect for these kind of people. So she saw that happening. She saw how they, like, Nick was lying on the floor and they were kicking him and then they pull him into the van and they drive off. She had obviously witnessed a crime. Yeah, she knew. Yeah, it It was not just like friends, No, you know, playing a prank on each other. So she drives close enough to be able to read the license plate and she didn't have anything to write it down and she didn't have a phone with her, I think, because remember it was the year 2000 and not everybody had a cell phone yet. But what she did is she started chanting the license plate together with her kids and they kept chanting it over and over all the way home and then she immediately called the police and told them everything she had seen. I find it so amazing. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. What's not so brilliant and amazing was how the police initially reacted. So they listened to the witness, they looked up the license plate, the car was registered, not to anybody who was in the way, I don't think the name matters. Right. They look up the address, but then they somehow misread the address, and that was about it. They really didn't take it too seriously, they didn't do anything. And which is even more upsetting is that the first woman wasn't even the only witness to call the police. Yeah. While the LAPD was still talking to witness number one, a second witness called in reporting the kidnapping of a teenage boy, but nothing was done. Somehow there was no connection made between these two calls and the incident wasn't even marked a kidnapping. It's just shockingly negligent, Mm. isn't it? Really? I mean, because it was a kidnapping. So now Nick is in the hands of Jesse James Hollywood and his goons. I feel like goons is too sweet a description for these... Yeah, Jesse James Hollywood and the overprivileged drug dealers. They should start a band. But yeah, you know, Jesse James Hollywood and his friends, they've they've got Nick. And Jeff and Susan have no idea where their son is or where to look for him. But where were they taking him anyway? So at first, they had to make another stop at Skidmore's house because they had to get his insulin, which I really feel like is an extra insulting fact when you think about it for a moment, because it shows they definitely understood actions and consequences, and they weren't incapable of looking out for themselves and others, right? It's not like they were so brainwashed or under the influence or, Mm. do you know what I mean? They aren't aren't mindless people. It adds an extra layer again of this ridiculousness, like they are acting all tough and mighty and, I mean, what's next? They're going to pick up their allowance money from mom? Right. 
It's all. I mean, I get it. It's, it's he he needs his insulin. Don't get me wrong, but it's just like you just kidnapped a teenager. You just kidnapped a teenager, and you're not even they're not even worried about it. So, oh, they just yeah. have to go pick up some insulin. Yeah, yeah. And then they picked up another friend, a kid named Brian, because that day they had all planned to head over to Santa Barbara for Fiesta, which is a week-long celebration of Spanish heritage that's apparently been taking place since 1924. That sounds nice, actually. That right? sounds pretty nice. I yeah. want to go to there. I've never been to Santa Barbara. But if you also haven't been to Santa Barbara, I can tell you it's roughly 70 miles or 113 kilometers west of West Hills. So it's a bit over an hour one way to get there by car. And so after they get the insulin, they, they've picked up their other friend, Brian. And Brian, he's the latest addition to the group. He sensed some weird vibes in the car when he got in. He couldn't help but notice the teenager in the back. And it was kind of obvious that he was not just another friend who was going to join them for their trip to Santa Barbara. But nobody said anything about it, and Brian didn't ask. But he would end up being the third witness. Once in Santa Barbara, they drove to another house, a friend of Jesse Rugi. And so Jesse walks up to the door of his friend's house, and his friend opens the door, and Jesse's like, hey, can we come in and stay for a while? And the friend's like, yeah, come on in. I'm just here with a couple people smoking some joints, and then we're going to head over to the festival. Come on in. So Jesse Rugi is like, great, thanks. And he goes back to the car and gets all of his friends. And now five of them are marching into this apartment. And they take Nick into a back room where they tie him up, cover his eyes, and gag him with one of his own socks. And of course, everybody in the apartment is like, what the fuck are you doing? What is going on? But Jesse James Hollywood tells them to just stay out of it and He's got a gun, so everybody is leaving. Nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody's calling the police. They just leave. They just want nothing to do with it. I also read that uh, before everybody was leaving, the girls who were at the apartment, they wanted to get their makeup. And the makeup and was apparently in the back room where Nick was. So they get in there and they use the mirror and they start putting on their makeup. All the while, Nicholas is there, tied and blindfolded. And, I mean... People. Who are these people? Annie said. I know. Who are these people? I don't know. I think this is one of the, um, and obviously we can talk a lot more about this next week, but I think a lot of this is the ramifications of what happens to a society when you criminalize drug use and abuse. Because as soon as people are afraid that they're going to be arrested, they don't get involved. True. True. Also, maybe it was this kind of, and uh, yeah, we will be talking about it more next week, but I think it's more like, maybe they didn't think that anything too serious would happen. Like, okay, there's just, they never shot anybody or, or you know, nothing like that had ever happened. They were just like, right, that's true. Acting all tough. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I think this is where we are going to stop for today. That's good. Cause it's gotten really loud over here in the last <laughs> few minutes. Please come back next week to learn more about this absolutely heartbreaking murder. I, I know this week's episode sounded like a little bit more comical, but it's really not. It's, no. It's, you're going to see next week. It's it's not at all uh, comical. I mean, we laugh about what assholes these kids were, but there's yeah. nothing funny about what they did. Nothing. No. Nothing. No. All. all right. Something good. Want me to start? Please. 
Uh, my something good. It's Ramson time. That's the English word for bärlauch, as much as I remember. Uh, I don't think you have it in the US. I don't think so. It grows wild in the forests in Europe, and you have to be careful when picking it. There exists some poisonous doppelganger, mm. but it's delicious. It's green leaves, they smell like garlic, and you can make delicious things. My sister knows how much I love her Ramson pesto. And it was so sweet, she kept searching for the plants for three days, and she didn't give up. And in the end, she found a spot that was just covered, covered in so much of it. Uh, Annie, I think I sent you the video. You did. Yeah, so cool. And she made me pesto, and it's delicious. And I love my sister, and she's my something good this week. I can't wait to meet your sister. She's so talented. Mm. And it'll be fun because probably Moose will come over with me at some point, if not my first visit. So I was going to say, ooh, all four of us can go get our nails done. But the Moose, she really prefers her hoofs to be lacquer free. <laughs> you could get blowouts. I'd never do that. You could just go get your hair washed and dried by a professional for no reason, just to have it done. It's so decadent. Very. I don't know. We'll find something fun to do. Our list is very, very long. My something good is that I went down the Cape this past weekend, and uh, we were able to see Frank Durant's Lady of the Dunes film that Charlie from Crime Lines and I had done a piece on for the film. I was a little bit worried that I would look bad or make us look bad, but it's okay. I'm, I'm mostly just sitting there sipping my tea, and I'm really proud of myself that I remembered to use a fresh hell mug when we recorded so it because the only time I'm on screen, it's just, it's me and Charlie and it's me sort of just smiling and nodding at the very <laughs> intelligent things that Charlie is saying. And then I just take a sip from my mug. I think that happens a few <laughs> times. Yeah. So it's fine. I didn't embarrass us. Uh, I can't wait to, until the film is released in other places and you can see it. I didn't agree with every opinion in it, um, but it definitely brought up some new information and now I have even more questions, um, and I'm just glad I didn't bring shame upon the podcast. I think it was okay. I knew you were going to do well. I, I <laughs> was not sure, but yeah, that's it. That's it. Please, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes or the whole podcast, please just go to your favorite podcast app and check if you can leave us a rating and or review. We would really, really appreciate it. We really would. We are almost at 1,000, I think. Yeah, when we a get to 1,000 US reviews, yeah. Then I'm going to do, like, we'll do like a giveaway on our socials. Somebody's going to win a hoodie. Also, shout out to everyone who left us a review this past week. We got so many really mm, nice reviews. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate it. You're doing so much for us. And we keep asking and asking for new stuff. Uh, the other thing is the Hot 50, Podcast Magazine Hot 50 voting. We dropped one spot to number 14. But hey, we're still there. And we're going to make it to the top 10, right? So please, use your daily vote for us, if you like. That would be awesome. Also, go to our webpage if you want to see more about how to contact us or how to support us. Uh, there you find links to our Patreon, to our Facebook group, to our merch store, to our email address. Everything that you need to know is there. Except for the Hot 50 link. Maybe I'm gonna edit. That would be great. Also... Tell your pets we said hi. We love them. We miss them. We love their photos. They're the cutest and best pets. 
I don't know, is it, uh, we almost had summery weather here and now then snow came back and like every year I was fooled. You got fooled by the fall spring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, Jam is now under the blanket again, so keep them there until it's really warm enough, okay? Yeah, that's a good idea, I think, for sure. <laughs> and if you are going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye-bye. <laughs>